Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Hi, I'm Katie Lazarus. Welcome to the Employee of the Month show. This was such a, a fun episode to tape and so fun to talk about. The warmth in the room was electrifying. This was probably our most fun and loopy episode. It was taped live at the Bell House. 350 people showed up. I was terrified that no one would come, and I was so thrilled. You guys mean so much. It's Talking to you right now is so fun. And the guests were just magical. It was Lin-Manuel Miranda, who you'll hear from. He won um, many Tonys for In the Heights. He also did the phenomenal opening number for the Tonys a couple times. And the most recent one with Neil Patrick Harris, I think, brings tears to my eyes every single time I go back and listen to it. So do check it out on YouTube. Right now he's working on Hamilton Mixed Tapes, which is this incredible album about Alexander Hamilton. And then there was also Lady Rizzo, who is a fabulous cabaret star with just this daring and gushing and gorgeous voice who's just so hilarious in her own right. And then we also had Mo Rocca, who's so funny. You might know him from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR, the weekly news quiz. And I'm going to plug Peter Sagal here since he contributed to the show and donated. And I also want to say that you can see Mo on um, Sunday morning on CBS. And you don't have to be 80 to watch it. You can be younger and watch it. And you can also see him on his own show on the cooking channel um, called My Grandmother's Ravioli. And last but not least, Robert Smigel, who is just a phenomenal comedy writer and having written for everything from SNL to Conan to uh, the Sandler films. Not all of them, but a substantial number of them, as well as many, many of his own projects. But you probably know him best for... Uh, TV Funhouse cartoons like The Ambiguously Gay Duo, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, who also made an appearance on the show. And yes, I did get ridiculed as I duly deserved and um, loved. Is that wrong? Is that wrong that at this stage of my life I love um, being torn to shreds on stage? It feels so good. That's what happens when you break into showbiz. You become like an abused child. You're like, this is wonderful. Please abuse me more. No, it really was a very, very special evening. I want to thank everyone who came out, and I hope that this recording of it brings you as much joy as it did to me. Without further ado, please enjoy one of the loopiest shows ever. Oh, my God. Sorry, before we start, I just want to thank Yair Avnin, Eric Bianzo, Shockwave, and Arthur Lewis, who are the wonderful, wonderful bands. They are all phenomenal musicians, and it's just such a joy to have them on the show. So now you can listen. Welcome to Employee of the Month. Welcome to the stage, your host, Katie Lazarus! Thank you! Let's give a warm, warm, warm thank you to our gorgeous band, I mean talented band. Shockwave, Arthur Lewis, Eric Biondo, and Yair Evine. 
and a round for all of you for finding this place. It's fucking fabulous. We have people here all the way from California, people from Washington, D.C., people from New Jersey. I know, it happens. <laughs> hey, Katie, great tights. Are those tights or are those nets? Thank or? you very much. They are from one of our guests, Lady Rizzo. Ooh, I've heard of um, I wore these in celebration of being like, I'll be the best friend if she ever has a movie, you know, or the nosy neighbor. <laughs> so these, this is my time, which is actually a great segue. That's so weird that that happened. Um, every time we do an opening sketch to start about work, we have done busy cards. Busy cards. We have done uh, get rich schemes. Get rich schemes. And this time we are going to do auditions. Auditions. Now, I knew my career had reached an all time high when I auditioned for the non speaking role of the wife of an immigrant with Crohn's disease for a local Philadelphia ad. all true was on hold for it my sister-in-law I don't know what to call it oh no I'd have to be married my brother's wife whatever she worked in marketing I thought I had an in didn't happen didn't get the part and I just realized like auditioning is hard and, and part of it is like I want an honest salesperson so I try to be honest I want to be informative so I try to be informed and a lot of times they ask for comedy chops so I try to show those and I just want to play for you um, for those of you who have dignity, what it is like to audition for commercials. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts, slate your name, and go. I'm Katie Lazarus. Dunkin' Donuts, America runs on Dunkin'. Does America run on Dunkin', or does America run to Dunkin'? Like, I feel like, I just, I don't, Donuts, like I don't feel like donuts and running are like a thing. Well, most Americans don't run. I'm not saying it's Dunkin' Donuts, I'm just saying most Americans don't run. Let's do another take. Dunkin' Donuts, America runs on Dunkin'. I love Dunkin' Donuts. I will take Dunkin' over Starbucks anytime for my coffee. I don't even care that it's not fair traded. That's not true. I really do care that it's not fairly traded, and I really wish they were fairly traded. It is better coffee, but... Pardon, Ecuador. Okay, Pardon. thanks. We got it. And Slate, Katie Lazarus. Can you hear me now? I can't, but that's because I have an iPhone. Just kidding. Can you hear me now? Yes. Well, technically I have AT&T because I can't afford Verizon, but if you can, get Verizon. I had it when I was in Hawaii, I was on a beach, and I got unbelievable coverage. And I was like, maybe Verizon just covers people who are really wealthy and can afford to be on a beach in Hawaii. And by the way, I was there on frequent flyer miles for my cousin's wedding. He made a mint screensavers. But I had to actually stay in a cot in his masseuse's room. And no, I didn't get free massages. But the point is, is that Verizon had incredible coverage. And at first I was wondering like, is this just good coverage for wealthy people? And it's like, no, there are all these people who work at their beach resort who don't make money at all. And furthermore, Hawaii has like a disproportionate number of people who are struggling with poverty. It's led to obesity and it's led to a horrible epidemic of methadone addiction. If you think about it, if all of those people had Verizon, they could reach out to anyone, anywhere, anytime, so they wouldn't have to feel isolated and like self-medicate in these self-destructive ways. Thank you, uh, yeah, we're all set on that one.
So we're so excited that you do comedy. We just want you to bring your own material, go with your gut, and this you're a mom, and you love your bugaboo stroller so much, you want to marry it. Oh, this will be great because you're pregnant. Uh, no, I just forgot to wear my Spanx. Jazz up your summer with the new Jazzy Blue Bugaboo. It's got four-wheel drive, all rear suspension, probably has a DVD player. I mean, the thing's going for $1,000, and if you're spending $1,000 on your stroller, well, you're an asshole. Take two, uh, obviously no foul language, and um, just really add some heart to it. Honestly, I don't know. I don't have children. I do want to have a family. I, it's not that I'm not fertile. I'm, I'm definitely fertile. I just haven't met the right guy yet. And I'm not saying that that's the way you can do it. You can also adopt, which I'm totally open to as well. But I know that when I do, I really hope I can afford a bugaboo stroller by that point. Bugaboo stroller. We're a bugaboo family. Let me try that again. Um, all right, let's keep it going for someone who has had the pleasure and privilege of making his living doing his dream. He is an overnight success. We'll talk about that. <laughs> he has won a zillion Tony Awards. You may know him from Freestyle Love Supreme, or you may know him from In the Heights, his own um, musical on Broadway, or you may know him from House or Modern Family, or you may not know him at all, and now you will. So without further ado, let us welcome Lin-Manuel Miranda. That'll never be an issue. <laughs> um, when is it appropriate for someone to say things like, and now welcome Lin Manuel Miranda when they are as white as snow? Oh, if you can pronounce it, it's fair game. I, I go by Lin to most of my white friends because I can't stand the word manual and me in the same sentence. They call sentence. you Lynn Emanuel, right? Or Lynn Manuel, and I just think this instantly. Oh, that makes sense. For your podcast me. listeners, yeah, I'm you, making a jacking off motion. I decided, because you are such a huge hit on Broadway, just to and because people fuck up your name, to just say that I would make you an honorary member of the tribe, Lynn Emanuel Mirandenberg. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Happy Sukkot. For outstanding service to Jews, gays, and gay Jews. <laughs> Fantastic. My audience. That's your audience, right? On yes. Broadway? That's the Broadway audience. So I want to hear about your overnight success, which started when you were in college at a small school in Middletown, Connecticut. Indeed. We Wesleyan University, of which you are also an alum. I was going to bring you a rape whistle. Um, and we were going to take back the night like Justin Timberlake? Yes. <laughs> So tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about that. You started writing in the Heights in yeah, some form. Yeah, I actually I started writing musicals in high school, and I have to tell you that our amazing uh, singer, keyboardist Arthur Lewis, I've known him since third grade. And he was my Tony in West Side Story when I directed it senior year in high school, and he was in my first musical called Nightmare in D Major, which wasn't pretentious at all. <laughs> And, um, and so, yeah, I, I wrote 20-minute musicals in high school, and my first full-length musical was In the Heights, and I wrote it my sophomore year in college. It obviously immediately right after went straight onto Broadway. <laughs> no, not even close. So what, what happened in between? Um, a, a couple of things. So it was originally sort of this 80-minute 
one-act show. It was my closest attempt at a, at a full-length show. And um, two kids who were seniors at the time um, saw the show. They actually watched it from the lighting booth because they were on tech crew. It was Neil Stewart and John Mailer, who is Norman Mailer's youngest son of the billion kids Norman Mailer had. Well, yeah, so he saw it and he said, Lynn, because he actually looks like young Norman. He's like, Lynn, we're going to take this to Broadway. And um, I said, okay, we're having a keg party at Home Avenue. And, um, and I sort of put the script in a drawer for two years, but they got in touch with me when I graduated. And they were very resourceful. They, they took the basement of the drama bookshop and converted it into a black box theater. Um, and so they had this sort of home base and a uh, little black box theater in the middle of Midtown. And so I met with them the week after I graduated. I met Tommy Kale for the first time, who was formed the company with them. And went on to be a director for you? Yeah, yeah. He, he, he kind of approached me. He had the script and a recording of it and s sort of came at me. He's like sort of the smartest guy in whatever room he's in, and he kind of came at me with, okay, it's really great, but In Washington Heights is a, is a Welcome to the World song, and it's your third number, and it should be first. And Usnavi is great, but he's, he's only in two scenes, and he would be a great narrator because all the stories pass through his store. So why don't you have him be the narrator, and you could have that song be first. And I was like, hi, I'm Lynn. Nice to meet you. <laughs> um, but he was, um, he was really smart, and all of his ideas were really good. And so we sort of started having a conversation on how to make the show better, and that conversation went on for six more years. And then how did it get <laughs> onto Broadway? Um, we, we, we did readings practice, in the basement. Practice, practice, Yeah, we did readings in the basement of that bookshop. The first year was sort of the best version of what I could write by myself. I learned I don't know how to write dialogue really well. Um, it, was, it was becoming <laughs> this operetta. It was becoming a pseudo-rent in the bad ways. Like, you know what? You could just say that. You could just say that instead of singing it. And we, um, candy bar wrapper. And, um, and so we, um, we, we went about looking for a book writer and we found Kiara, who had just graduated from Brown and went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for her amazing plays. She was sort of the missing piece and then we all worked for another four years together once she came on board. So that's overnight success. It's actually eight years. Right. <laughs> and so then you have your first Broadway production. And you get nominated for how many Oscars? Oh, so Oscars, Tony, sorry. That's okay. I already feel less than because you demoted okay, me. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but we, we got nominated for 13 Tonys, and we took home four, which was nice, including the big one. And that was, that was really necessary because it was, you know, we were the Latin hip-hop musical, and, you know, you're... Which are a dime a dozen on Broadway, let's be real. <laughs> which are a dime a dozen and, and really make the old Jewish ladies who spend money on tickets want to go to theater. They go, I, I, I hate rap, but I love this. <laughs> we needed them to say that, <laughs> to, to have a successful run, and they, and they loved it, thank goodness. And one of your admirers is Stephen Sondheim, and you guys are close collaborators now, and you've um, done two things together, and he's put you in stuff. Do you like G-chat with Stephen Sondheim? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what? I do send him any Sondheim-related internet things that happen. So there was an article. There was, um, there was a BuzzFeed article about an ice cream man in Queens that plays Send in the Clowns. It's like the only truck, and it's like you can tell someone programmed it by hand, and it's like... So I send that to him. I said, you're making people in Queens very sad. And, <laughs> and he emailed me back. Uh, two sentences, he said, this is very upsetting. Thank you. 
<laughs> and you don't know quite how to take that, but you know, I, I send him all of that stuff. I'm, I'm the annoying young guy who's like, look at this thing that happened to you. <laughs> I probably bother him a lot. Um, what was it like starring in one of his shows when it's not something you've written, it's not something you've created? I mean, that was the really fun thing. I did this uh, production of Merrily We Roll Along for, for encores. Um, and again, I played a Jewish guy, I played Charlie Kringis, and... Um, You're stealing all the parts from the Jews. I am. I am. It's an Ashanda. It's Ashanda. <laughs> and, and we really actually... It's, um, it's a whole other thing. You know, we had 10 days to rehearse, um, and it's the hardest music I've ever learned in my life. And we, had, we did our own typewriter stunts. There's a song called Opening Doors where you're singing and playing typewriter percussion at the same time. And that's all I did. I mean, all I remember is every lunch break, from, didn't sleep, just typewriter, typewriter stunt work. Um, and it was, it was the most stressful and joyous sort of experience of my life. And I got to know him in a different way because, you know, when, you know, when I did the translations for West Side Story, it was just sort of like, hey, kid, don't fuck it up. That's how you guys met, was that you're doing the Spanish translation for yeah. West Side Story. Yeah, and he said, just make it rhyme in the same place and, and don't fuck it up. Um, Which is obviously so easy. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really, it was really hard. But, but acting in a show, you get this sort of whole other access because he's also, that show is a about um, a composing team and about a friendship coming apart. So it's a very personal show to him. So, you know, I got 10 more anecdotes about sort of these lives and what they're based on and sort of his experience growing up, you know, being in Tin Pan Alley Land and sort of trying to get these shows on and doing backers auditions and the success and failure. I mean, it's, it's a really amazing thing he's documenting in that show. During this time, you're taking all kinds of odd jobs, including... Uh, Doing bar mitzvahs. I did. I, I lost a good chunk of my dignity. I have none left. <laughs> um, Dan, I was the guy in the black satin shirt that got paid a hundred bucks per bar or bat mitzvah to like get kids and old ladies to dance. Like they come with entertainment <laughs> groups where they're like, Rachel, you're a woman now. Who's your friend? Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, you learn, you know, when you're a theater major, you learn a lot of skills that will not do you any good. But one of the things you learn is mask work and how, like, you can kind of have a new identity with a mask. There was a bar mitzvah <laughs> where, we had <laughs> where we had to wear carnival masks. And so I'm in my black satin shirt and my black pants, like, with a mask on doing carnival. And I got groped by more old Jewish ladies. <laughs> like, it was like it took my identity away. And we were like, this is, they were like, this is property. We can touch this. <laughs> and I got fully molested by, like, old ladies at Rachel's Bat Mitzvah in Syosset. So I have no shame, and I think I left most of it at Rachel's Bat Mitzvah in Syosset. Speaking of feeling violated, you also wrote... <laughs> what a segue! <laughs> you wrote the lyrics for robocalls uh, from various politicians. You, you've actually... Uh, I wanted to hear about that, because you also did theme music for so many wonderful politicians. I think Spitzer was one of them. <laughs> I Fernando did. Ferrer. So, so my dad works in politics. He's just finished Thompson's campaign, and that's fully over as of yesterday. And so I was sort of the cheap in-house music, and, and I paid my rent by writing, like, my dad would call me, and he would be like, I need 30 seconds of smooth jazz for a Sharpton radio spot. <laughs> um, to be fair, and I would write 30 Lynn, seconds of Lynn, smooth jazz. to be fair, jazz. your dad uses a, a Bluetooth. Yeah, and he has a Bluetooth in his ear at all times. He's that asshole. He's the guy like, and I need, and Spitzer, it needs to be Latin, but not to, hello? 
And like midway through, he's talking to someone else and you have no idea because he's got the Bluetooth in. So I wrote music for Spitzer's first gubernatorial campaign. I wrote for Hillary's Senate campaign. Um, and all of this sort of just like general background uplift music. The fun ones to write are the ones where the negative ads, because they'll be like, you know, it's just, you just literally have to put like your hand on a minor chord with strings. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, I, I don't know, uh, Mark Green thinks. Latinos should jump in the river. <laughs> no thanks, Mark. Freddie Ferrer. Da, 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 da. And half of it is like actually in the Heights music that I just threw in <laughs> um, for 15 seconds. But it's just hand on a minor chord. Mark Green thinks babies should be registered. No thanks, Mark Green. <laughs> it's really easy work. And now you are a famous, famous rock star, it feels like, in um, Puerto Rico, where you even have a bodyguard. I do. I'm usher in Puerto Rico. <laughs> Here I take the F train like all of y'all. Um, but in, I, I, just, I shot a, uh, an indie movie two years ago that just opened last weekend, and I had to go do press for it, and I am straight up usher there. Um, and and like, I get attacked at the Starbucks, and like people come after, like paparazzi know where I am, and they come take pictures of me when I come out of places. Um, and it's, but it's like only on one island. It's like Prince in the Park. Like I go visit, and people go, ah! And then I come back here and, and get really drunk on rum and coke with you. I am going to give you um, a little gift because I was so happy that you came here all the way from Inwood, which for those of you who don't know is past Philadelphia on the A train. And it's just a map of Brooklyn and a cliff bar, and I put it in a Park Slope co-op bag that you get to carry home even though you're not a member. Thank you. Um, and I was going to ask because you are a phenomenal uh, freestyle rapper and I know that one of the reasons Stephen Sondheim has said that he so admires you is that you've always been so respectful and admiring of what is musical theater but also completely created your own voice and part of that is your unbelievable ability to think on your feet and improvise and I was wondering if you and Arthur might want to do something together for old time's sake. Oh yeah! So I wrote this musical um, my, my senior year in high school called Seven Minutes in Heaven. What and is that it is about? Uh, it's about your first unchaperoned party in middle school. And um, the first halfway good song I ever wrote was this, this song. It was called Beverly Song, and it was Beverly going to her first um, unchaperoned party. And I thought, Arthur's here, and Arthur was around for it, so Arthur could sing it, and I'll play it. Um, you can hear a song I wrote when I was 17 years old. I did not play Beverly in high school, for the record. All right, let's welcome Lin-Manuel and Arthur Lewis. Um, can I tell the story of how I met Arthur Lewis real quick? So there was a rumor in third grade that, um, <laughs> there was a rumor in third grade that there was a kid who could spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. But he was in the other class, and I found him in the cafeteria. And I said, hey, I hear you can spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And he looked up fully, like, without guile, without snarkiness, and said, backwards or forwards? <laughs> That's a true story. And I said, backwards, of course, and he did it. Anyway, this is, uh, this is Beverly's song. Staring in my own eyes 
I can see how much my face has grown. Is this what I'll look like when I'm old? Cause it's kind of strange about to change. There is a party tonight. Amy hired a DJ to come and play. And I've been feeling sick inside all day. I wish Amy's parents hadn't gone away. Cause everyone's acting crazy. Sixth grade, everything was very clear. You guys go play, we're fine right over here. But suddenly, we're interested in what they have to say. They're just as stupid as they were last year. That's not entirely true. Last week in Mr. Haig's class, Justin Gomez turned and smiled at me. I just froze and smiled back sheepishly, turning crimson red, the blood rushing to my head. I thought to myself, oh God, my stomach feels strange and my palms are all sweaty and gross. Reflection is changing, and I wonder if I look this scared of clothes. Cause I am afraid. I don't know what to make of seventh grade. I don't know what to make of seventh grade. Woo! Nice! Arthur Lewis and Lin-Manuel Marianza. You are a phenomenal freestyle rapper. You guys do this together. And by the way, they have shows at, at Joe's Pub coming up, so definitely check out Freestyle Love Supreme. But I was going to ask you a huge favor. We can share this mic. It won't feel awkward. <laughs> Would you be willing to do a wrap-up of the show after to show off your skill? Usually I ask people to do what they should do as their day job, but this is what you should be doing as your day job. So is that cool? Yes. So you're just going to sit on stage and keep drinking. Uh, what, what do you drink? Cuba Libre. <laughs> bueno, but tiene más Cuba Libre. Li libre. Libre. See how annoying it is? I find it irritating on all accounts. Okay, great. De la sangre de Cristo, quíteme de esta casa. Okay. So you're going to sit there, and you're going to do a fabulous wrap-up of the end. You guys, thank you so much to Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> far up and inward that he's moving downtown to Washington Heights. Just so you can get a sense. So let's keep going because we have so many amazing guests and you guys are, are, I feel so bad for the people standing. You can sit if you want. Don't worry about it. But you're strong. That's why you're thin and in shape and live in New York. Um, are you ready for our next guest? If you don't know him from reading all the president's pets, how one reporter won't ro didn't roll over. I hope I didn't botch that. Uh, you may have known him from The Daily Show. You may see him on CBS Sunday morning if you own a television and are 65 and over. Um, he had. Oh, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I apologize. I apologize. CBS. 
is an up-and-coming network. I apologize. <laughs> he also has his own show on the Cooking Channel, which you can watch online, like the rest of us po people, called My Grandmother's Ravioli, which is really fun. He is hysterical. He's also on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. So without further ado, let's welcome Mr. Moraka. <laughs> There are a lot of old people here, as they'll recognize. If me. anyone is over the age of 21, please <laughs> raise their hands. Yeah, they can shout. You guys are so much better than that. Um, so you went to Harvard, and I'm going to make a generalization, which will be a clear indication that I did not go to Harvard. I feel like there are two people who go there, generally. You know, people who were number one in their class, and they get there and realize there are all these other people who are number one, and they fall apart. And then there are people who go there and are, were number one in their class and find out that there are all these other people who are number one and are stimulated and excited by it, and um, they become really successful later in life. And you seem to be of the latter. Is that fair? Um, I'll take that. Yeah, I'd rather be that than the, the person who goes and falls apart. Is that a, fair, is that a fair assessment of, yeah. of those people, too? Uh, you mean, okay, so people who were number one and then crack under the pressure crack under the pressure and, and all of a sudden they're not number one anymore and it, it's a confusing world out there for sure. them. Sure, no, I mean... I have no experience with any of this. It's one, so. of those, it's one of those weird places where people will say in the dining hall, like, oh, oh, see that girl over there? She's the world's greatest cellist in her age group and she can't read. Like, it'll, like, <laughs> like there's a lot of weird... The people will have, like, really erratic, lopsided resumes like that. Yeah. yeah. Backgrounds like that, yeah. And there you were very involved in hasty... Pudding. Pudding. And what do you guys? They're pudding pops. Is the for the rest of us? What is hasty pudding to to the elite? Well, it's the world's oldest college theater group, and there's a lot that can be said about it. But it's basically an excuse for guys to put on women's clothing. It's a drag show. Okay. It's a drag show, and it's an old drag show. And uh, and I learned a lot. I mean, I spent most of my time at Harvard. Um, dressing up as a woman, and I could learn by the, my, my senior year, I was a four-year woman, which is actually very rare, uh, seriously, to be, like, busy. there's no point in being in a drag show if you're going to play a man, and it's very ritualized, like, half the characters are male characters, half are female characters, so I was, I was a four-year woman, and by the end, I could do a front handspring wearing four-inch heels, so, because I, I was trained as a gymnast, so. You were trained right. as a gymnast mm -hmm. in yep. Bethesda, Maryland? Yes, on my front lawn. <laughs> Now, you did, you studied all the way through in acting and theater, going to North Carolina School of the Arts when you were young yeah. with Parker Posey. That's right. Yeah, uh, um, friends there. And so when did, when you graduated? We 16 years old. Yeah, 16. It's kind of nice. And when you graduated, did you assume you were going to go into dance, theater? What did you decide you were going to go into? Yeah, I had a lot of type A friends who were... Shocking. I know, exactly. And I'm very vulnerable, and so I'm very... Uh, I, I really am to that kind of a thing. So I was surrounded by a lot of people saying, this is what you should be doing. And so I wanted to be in musicals, so I went to New York. 
Well, first I was a roller skating waiter in Washington, D.C. to earn, I was, and I, at, at a French restaurant called La Nissoise, and so I sang and I roller skated, and this was when roller blades were just coming in, and I knew enough to keep it old school, so I wore, I, I only used like four-wheeled roller skates, and uh, which I think was more charming, and then I earned the money to move to New York, and I auditioned for musicals, and I was eventually cast in the Southeast Asian tour of the musical Grease, where I played duty. <laughs> Um, who was the youngest of the greasers and, uh, and his songs, everything was subsumed by John Travolta, by the Danny character in the movie. But the, um, the musical, the stage musical is much more small D democratic where the, the songs are spread around, which is nice. And because uh, everybody feels valued in the stage musical. Uh, and so um, I did that and uh, oh, what was my point? Oh yeah, but then I had a, a very type A friend who said, you're not gonna make it unless you write your own way or do your own material. You can't just stand in line and audition for musicals. Um, and yeah, and so uh, I eventually started trying to write my own stuff, and I became a writer for a, a show called Wishbone, which is a PB. Oh, good, yeah. It's a Peabody Award-winning children's show for kids it six is, to nine. And it yes, and it features a Jack Russell Terrier who, in his dream life, becomes the heroes of classic novels in order to familiarize kids between the ages of six and eleven with the themes of those books, so that when they encounter them later on, they'll find them less daunting. <laughs> so it did have a very clear educational objective. Now, your agent recommended that you audition for The Daily Show based on an article you had written about Florence Harding. How did you find an agent who even knew who Warren Harding is, never mind Florence? I, it's, you know, I found at the Warren Harding Presidential Library, they have no, no, a no, deal the with... Agent, the agent. No, they have a deal with William Morris. William oh. Morris has been covering <laughs> Will, Warren Harding for a while. Endeavor Sorry. has Calvin Coolidge. It's like <laughs> an ICM right now has James Garfield. It's brutal, actually, when they fight over these presidents. I mean, don't even ask me who has William Howard Taft, though there's a lot to go around. <laughs> that was kind of a nice, sort of smart, innocent joke. Um, the um, uh, uh, no, I, I, what happened was um, I uh, didn't know what I was doing, and uh, and um, at the time, the boyfriend that I was living with was tired of me sitting around going, "What do I want to do? What am, how am I going to make a career?" And so he basically, and I, then I, I, I sort became interested in the in in presidents that you can't remember were actually president. All the guys between Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, a lot of them with facial hair. A couple of them were knocked off by anarchists. And a lot of them live in Ohio, which is why Ohio can claim to be the mother of all presidents, even though they only have seven when eight were born in Virginia. Virginia really is the mother of all presidents. Ohio's a stepmother. But I anyway. Am so, I am so glad I did not know you as a kid. <laughs> and I memorized a TV guide. This is pre-cable, but still, it was a big deal. Um, and... Uh, and so um, and I memorized everything in the 1974 World Book. So I still think there's a French West Africa and that there's a country. <laughs> so, but in any case, so I I, I bought a one-way ticket to Indianapolis. This is it. This is it. And I went and I visited the Benjamin Harrison House um, on the old north side of Indianapolis. And Benjamin Harrison, our 23rd president, he's in that Grover Cleveland sandwich. He's surrounded by the Glo Grover Cleveland's non-consecutive terms. And he was known for having clammy hands. But I took a no, tour. No, no one in the room is applying to go to Harvard. <laughs> At this point, <laughs> applications are, are, are plummeting. All right. Are, um, but anyway, I was so inspired by this 75-year-old woman named Wanda Wheeler who had spent 22 years volunteering full-time at the Benjamin Harrison House. And she led me and a group of second graders around 
the house and by I'm not kidding you and by the end I wanted to sandblast Mount Rushmore and replace it with Benjamin Harrison because her passion was so intense and so I became really interested in sort of weird marginalized history and the sites that know that people really only visit because they want to use the bathroom and it's really dependent on these docents and I love docents and in my fan- fantasy life I'd be a docent I'd be a tour guide because I think they're real heroes I think you should be filibustering for Congress <laughs> Well, because it's true, because if you work at a place like Monticello or something, all you have to do is be like, yeah, this is Jefferson's place, and people are impressed right away. Uh, then they ask you about the slavery thing and Sally Hemings, and it gets complicated. But um, in any case, I went to these strange sites, and I met great characters, and that's how I got on TV. And so I mean, it's pretty amazing. It was an article that didn't get picked up as an article. It and wasn't you, sold to anyone. So it was not an article yet, but that was how you got into The Daily Show. Yeah, it was a collection of words that right, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, and what I was so impressed with is you're on this hit show when it's at its h- height. I mean, it's, it's, I know they keep getting Emmys, but, but really at the beginning they were so exciting and new. How did you know how to leave that in such a volatile business when you have no idea what could be next? Sex scandal. You, you had one? No, I was the only one not in it. And so because... Oh. <laughs> And with and so they couldn't afford to have me around because if you weren't invested in it, then you were gonna you were gonna squeal. Uh, no, I like. It's hard to it's hard to know when to leave a job, especially a really plum one is, like being no, a reporter on the actually, Daily Show. And actually, listen, that's a, that is a great point. I don't think it's a good idea. It's it's hard when you're paying attention to what people on the outside think of something. I mean, it is very difficult, um, which is why I like hanging out with grandparents because they don't care about what anyone thinks of them. I'm serious. You get to a certain point in your life and you just don't care. And that's very admirable. It's true. I aspire. I want to be like the grandparents that I've met right now because they just don't. They're like, I'm doing my thing. But anyway, um, uh, no, I mean, you have to know not to stay beyond a certain point. I love doing field work. And I, believe me, I love doing The Daily Show. It was a great show. But, you know, eventually I wanted to do more stuff in the field and less stuff in studio. So let's segue, actually, because you were referring to the grandparents you meet doing My Grandmother's Ravioli, um, which is a TV show. We're going to show a video from Grandmother's Ravioli. And while we do that, I was going to bring out some pecan pie, and you're going to tell me how it fares, because you go and visit all of these real grandparents and get real recipes from real people. If you were Sephardic, you would be a grandmother by now, by the way, because I just did Sephardic cooking in Deal, New Jersey, and those grandmothers are, like, young. They have the babies early. So we'll play, we'll play my grandmother's ravioli. <laughs> chop, chop, sister. <laughs> I love boys who think they can take the pressure off now that there's gay marriage. There's no reason why you can't get I know, on it. we're all... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all get to be part of the conversation. So dig in to this while they do that. You can, you can eat some. It's pecan, not pecan. <laughs> Mo and I will be going home together. Okay. Now it's only used like about this much. And you put it right here on the center. You are go, go, go. Yeah, I'm not a go, go girl though. Did you ever do the, uh, uh, what is it called? Philadelphia, the strut, the, mum, the mummer strut. Did you ever see the mummer's parade no, in Philly? No, I never did. Oh, I've heard of it. I don't have the song for the thing, but I'm stupid. Clarice, you shouldn't be dancing, you silly. 
Um, actually, you should always be dancing because it's amazing. One, six, seven, eight. So, oh, we left the men too long, see? You need a little a couple lessons making these, honey. I know. It's, I'm get, but I'm getting better. That's Very my good. record. So how, what did you think of this homemade pecan pie? Do you think I'm good enough to be on the show? I think the pecan pie is fantastic. <laughs> and, um, I think, yeah, I think you could do it. But you got to go visit that lady. She's 94. She makes you want to be 94. She's a total spitfire. I really, really enjoyed that, and I really recommend people watch it online. Now, you, you started the show under the premise that you were going to learn how to cook, but you have not learned how to cook. I have not, you know, I have not learned how to cook. The premise of the show, which is true, is that I've gotten to this point in life not knowing how to cook, and I'm guilty that my amazing grandmother, who made fantastic ravioli, hence the name my grandmother's ravioli, used to make these beautiful meals, and I just sh sort of show up, and like a lot of kids, you think the food sort of appears out of nowhere, you enjoy it, and then it's like, oh, that was great. But, you know, and if I could go back in time, I'd show up a little bit early and learn how to cook from but her. But the point is you haven't learned how to cook. Exactly. And this is all guilt abatement for me to go around and, and learn from other grandparents. Uh, but I haven't because I want, the, I want the series to go on forever. That's like, what I figured, that it was a way to get, say, I need yeah. to get another season. If Bart, C if Bart Simpson can be <laughs> 10 years old for 20 years, I can not know how to cook for <laughs> 20 years. So we are, we are going to um, play uh, Not My Job Yet from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Oh, good. Oh, that's great. Because Mo is so brilliant, and one of the things that you are particularly brilliant at is geography. I um, am. I love geography. Oh, Jesus. I do. I do. I love oh my geography. God. I just can't figure out if he was the oldest kid. I love geography. Who is Mo playing for you here? Mo Rocco will be playing for Peter Sagal of Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> I'm pa playing for Peter Dinklage? <laughs> no, you're playing for Peter Sagal. You're playing for... Oh, for Peter Sagal. <laughs> the host oh, of Wait, Wait, Don't oh, Tell Me. Yes, of course. He's great. He also says hello. You ready? Hi, nervous? Hi. Uh, yes. What is Morocco's official language? Moroccan Arabic, as if there are any other kinds of Arabic. Literary Arabic, so intellectually insecure, they need to let you know they're literate. Or French, because the Moroccans are known snobs. I am going to say I cannot believe that the French that French is the official language. So I am going to I am going to say Moroccan Arabic. No, is it French? It's literary Arabic. Oh, <laughs> it's I'm, it's I just, all right. But we've got two more chances for Peter. All Zagel. I know is that Tangiers is full of child molesters. <laughs> Done. It's a creepy European, <laughs> Northern European, and Danish men who come down and take advantage of what's actually a cultural rite of passage for young men. It's disgusting. Well, this is a, that's I'm a per- serious. It's gross. It grosses me out. That is a perfect segue. Yeah. <laughs> According to the 2013 World Happiness Report from Columbia University's Earth Institute, what is the happiest country oh in the God. world? Oh my God, is it Denmark? It's, it's, they're Scandinavian. It used to be Costa Rica, and we have a Costa Rican grandmother, Lita, and she makes a, a wonderful uh, Vigoron, which That's is okay. actually Nicaraguan. You got it. You got it. But it's because it's not because of her food. It's because of the, that they ride bikes. You is it Denmark? It. Yes, It's not because it. they're molesting kids in Tangiers. You got it. Mo got one. So you just need one more, Mo. One more for Peter, who I'm sure is gripping. gripping something about the, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. No, nope. no, nope. that didn't factor in, That's and nor is that a country. Um, go, Wesleyan. Where was, where was Haagen-Dazs ice cream first concocted? Was it Sweden, which is also where f the name Frozen Galaja comes from? Was it Norway, where Norwegians are known for their coffee desserts? Or was it the United States, 
just like Twinkies, fried Oreos, and other sophisticated delicacies. haagen sounds like it's Turkish, but it's actually made up, and it's from the good old U.S. of A. And where specifically was it first sold? That wasn't part of the question. Brooklyn! Okay, great. I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> you, won Peter, you won for Peter Sagel, so let's give you a round of applause, and thank you to Peter. And this just proves that you shouldn't quit your day job, although you would make a phenomenal um, geography professor or uh, little brother. I give everyone a gift bag before they go. They are all from the Park Slope Co-op, and this one comes with the golden child, because I imagine you were a bit of a golden child growing up. Thank you so much. Can I, I feel like I'm very impressed that Lin-Manuel Miranda sang a song, and I would like to do something. (laughs) So what I would like to do, even though this is a podcast and you would have to describe what's happening, I can describe what's happening, is I do a certain trick that um, I would like to do, um, (laughs) and it's a kind of cartwheel. Well, it's a cartwheel with one hand with a glass of water in my free hand without spilling a drop, and it's something that I was injured doing recently on Fire Island, don't ask. And uh, <laughs> and I feel like this is like at the end of Vertigo when Jimmy Stewart has to confront his fear and when he goes up Coit Tower. Is that right? I've got that right, just, I think. Just In confront case, it quickly. <laughs> Let's watch Mo Rocca confronting his fear. And also, you guys should know, he was in the 25th annual Putnam Spelling Bee and he is a phenomenal performer on stage in addition to being an intellectual snob. for an album he did, and he also just recently won an Emmy. He won it for Night of Too Many Stars, which is a phenomenal benefit that has raised over $14 million for autism. And for those of you who don't know who this next guest is, I want to um, show a clip from his groundbreaking and very thoughtful work. Hey, Conan. I'm here right outside the Wiener Circle. Thanks so much for sending me here. Um, I'm really excited. I've heard great things, and it looks like there's a lot going on in there. So come on, let's go check it out. Hey, step up. Uh, I just, uh, what you, what you want? Uh, I don't know the difference between a Vienna Red Hot and a Chardon. What Chardon, what Chardon? I'm letting you know, I just want a hot dog. Do you want a Chardon thing? You slow your Oh yeah, oh yeah, skanky smurf. Who 
You listen. You listen to me, Queen Laquifa. Listen to you and your mouth. Do you kiss your pimp with that mouth? You know what they say. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? That's perfectly natural where he comes from. Why are you so mean to this kid? His sisters used to tease him mercilessly, especially during sex. That's not true. That's not true. Don't be ashamed. Hey, you know why you guys work for tips? Because no one will stick the whole thing in. School. Oh no, you didn't wash your ass today. <laughs> Please welcome the beginning of the end of my dignity and Mr. Triumph, the insult comic dog. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Hello, Brooklyn. Oh my goodness. Thank you. What an honor to be here. This is incredible. What we're doing tonight, I mean, think about it. A podcast from Brooklyn? Has this ever been done before? Seriously, I tripped over five podcasts on the way in. <laughs> Fucking the new Brooklyn, yes. They've, they've replaced homeless people with podcasters. Thank you, Bloomberg. The only difference is homeless people do less begging. <laughs> Please help me on my show! <laughs> Seriously, what's the problem? Hadassah Magazine didn't have an intern job for you? I kid! I kid! And look at the guests you had. Mo Rocca was really here? How you doing, Mo? Mo's backstage. Great job, Mo. Long time no care about. This is a charity event, yes? Yes. What's the charity? Giving you a show? <laughs> the rim shot. <laughs> Thank you. We want to be able to play the band. We want to be able to pay the bands, <laughs> sound editors, What's, dog groomers. You I'm, know. I'm lost. I've got 20 more jokes. <laughs> Just get out of the way. <laughs> who, has, who, who has more sex, Louis C.K. or you? Uh, are you talking about masturbation? Then it's Louis. <laughs> Listen, there, Jesus, this is so exciting. <laughs> I mean, there are only 600 podcasts going on right down the street. There are so many podcasts in Brooklyn right now. Even the fake prop jizz used on the show Girls has a podcast. <laughs> this is really being recorded, listened to by humans. Who's kidding who? My conch shell has more listeners than this show. Oh, and look at this night kid. You've got a great crowd. How about all these people who came out? Give yourselves a hand. Yes. Look at these beautiful faces. Oh, my goodness. Usually you have to go to a John Mayer concert to see this many white people. <laughs> Seriously, I've seen more diversity on a UCB Harold team. <laughs> These are really inside baseball jokes. Hello. By show of applause, folks, who took the F train here? And who took the G train? And who is a disappointment to their family and will never earn a salary of more than 30,000? <laughs> Woo! 
yes. Let's, let's help Katie out. Let's live tweet. <laughs> let's all live tweet the show. <laughs> hashtag, hashtag, I'm still on my parents' cell phone plan. I wish. I wish I had those parents. No, podcasts are great. You know, I'm getting into the podcast game, too. Yeah. Yes, yes. I, my, mine gets better ratings than you, I'm sorry to say. It's a new podcast. <laughs> that's, that's not hard. It's a new podcast. It's just the sound of me licking myself. <laughs> slurper, slurper, slurper. Yeah, yeah. The AV, Club, the AV Club gave it a high rating, but said it's derivative of Mark Marin. <laughs> no, no, no. Everybody has heard that piece of shit. <laughs> He gets good ratings. Come on, Katie, try and make me cry. <laughs> Let's see the sad clown come out. <laughs> Seriously, if Groucho Marx had been on Mark Marin's show, you know, and he was doing like, that's the most ridiculous thing, Mark would have been like, hey, man, cut the shit. So many walls, Groucho. No, Mark would have made it all about him and like sidelined Groucho talking about his phenomenal career and talking about his shitty stand-up career instead. Speaking about, speaking of all about him, get out of my way! <laughs> I've got more Brooklyn jokes. <laughs> you know, folks, a lot of people don't know this, but Red Hook was named after my cock. <laughs> because everybody has trouble finding that too. Boo, Brooklyn, everyone always still crying about the Dodgers. <laughs> Stop whining. You lost your ball team, so did I. <laughs> Day doesn't go by that I don't miss those two guys. I see we have, a, there are a couple of people here from Bed-Stuy, and then this guy over here in the front with the long hair. I believe you're from Pigsty, yes? <laughs> Stand up, bearded guy, bearded, yes. All right. Woo! Let me guess, let me guess. Was the last time you came close to a shower Hurricane Sandy? <laughs> Triumph the insult, comic dog. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming. Thank you, you very much. Thank you very much. You've been a great hip crowd for me to poop on in a very hip manner. So, I think we should bring out our next guest because we're running over. He was on SNL as a writer and performer. He's famous for penning the ambiguously gay duo among the McLaughlin group and many others. He also helped create Late Night with Conan O'Brien during the Masturbating Bear. He's been in Curb Your Enthusiasm. This is 40. Please welcome Robert Smigel. excited now, but it's a huge letdown, I promise you. Robert. I, I apologize. Is this an Think Emmy about in your me. pocket? This is an Emmy that Robert won for Night of Too Many Stars, and I wanted to pass it out like the Stanley Cup, except that it's a thousand times less important. But here, awesome. pass it around to distract yourself from the boredom you're about to experience. <laughs> so Seriously, it's a huge letdown. You'll see. And... Um, but if well, you feel bad for yourself, it. if you feel bad for yourself, Think just consider your it's a huge letdown for me, too. <laughs> Seriously, every day I get up and I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, so you don't have the dog? <laughs> All right, just brush your teeth and let's get it over with. I do want to 
talk about, well, we can start with Night of Too Many Stars, which is a legendary now in the making um, phenomenal charity that raises <laughs> money for autism, not pro-autism, but um, <laughs> providing... No, well, we're not against or for. <laughs> we really aren't. We're for people, we're trying to help people who have it. And he raised uh, over $14 million. Something like that. Last year it was four. We did, I think we've done $18 million over I the apologize. last eight years. And um, it's something we're very proud of, and uh, we uh, get everybody, literally everybody, everybody from Chris Rock to Seinfeld to Steve Carell and Will Ferrell, they all come. It's amazing. It's amazing. an in incredible show on Comedy Central that you can watch, um, but I more Next important, year. <laughs> more important than watching it, you can also give, so I wanted you to plug the uh, nonprofits. Mm that you and There's your no wife real place especially to give. work with. There's no real place to give right now. Is so. that right? Yeah, right, it's well, on next it year. Us. I did want to ask... If you Google the Katy Perry video, everybody, if you want to know what we do, <laughs> why we do it... No, not a silly Katy Perry video. <laughs> no, we, there, if you Google Katy Perry and Jody, you'll see what it is, why we do this show. And it, believe me, it's worth your trouble. But what our charity does is we help kids who... Uh, we don't, it's not a research charity, it's a, uh, because everybody does that and it's very important, but there's just a huge shortage of schools and programs for kids and adults. Something I've experienced personally having an autistic child and, and so it's, uh, it's just uh, a big deal. Well, I'm very proud and I think I speak on behalf of everyone here and grateful that you have spearheaded this and really gone mm -hmm. out of the way to get Hollywood to give. Woohoo! Um, <laughs> let's... Woo -hoo -hoo! We're going to segue to another thing. Some of your credits, you have so yeah, many illustrious credits. let's talk about credits. what an asshole I am. I'm much more comfortable okay. with that. Um, <laughs> you've been kicked out of Westminster Kennel Club, kicked out of the 2000... Three times, yes. Three times. Kicked out of the 2004 Democratic National Convention. Yes, the Democrats are, have, have much less of a sense of humor than the Republicans, oddly Shocking, enough. I know. Um, in 2008, I was kicked out, I think, by... No, 2004, also the Republicans. Okay, good. So it's nonpartisan. I yelled at Abe. Bipartisan. Abe Hirschfeld was passing in a wheelchair, <laughs> and I screamed, Abe, during George Bush's speech. And immediately, like, four guys, <laughs> and I was questioned backstage. They're just, they're there to protect Abe Hirschfeld. And you were condemned by the Canadian Parliament. You were sued by Pets.com. Yeah. Leaped on every major network TV show to fresh air with Terry Gross. What are your legal bills like? There are none, I, because uh, NBC, uh, NBC, uh, what is it, what's the term? Uh, indemnifies me, thank you. At least they used to before the whole thing that happened with, uh, with you know, what, what Jay and all oh. that, which I don't want to discuss. It's just, that's why I don't do interviews at but all. But it's in interesting, because, I mean, <laughs> with TV Funhouse also, you were, you know, constantly pushing the buttons, I imagine, with the um, FCC. Yeah, we had some banned ones there. I did one called Conspiracy Theory Rock, which gets around the internet a lot, which was based on an NYU professor named Mark Crispin Miller, who, a uh, brilliant guy, who uh, created a whole chart showing how the media is controlled by, like, three or four conglomerations. So I did a schoolhouse rock kind of explanation of that that was very specific and very critical of GE, who was owning NBC at the time. And somehow they let it on, they let the show on, and then Bob Wright, who was the president of NBC at the time, uh, happened to come home that night at 12.30 <laughs> when it was on. The, the standards people said, well, let it on, but put it on at like 12.30. Well, Bob Wright came home at 12.30 that night. So he flipped on SNL. Usually he probably only watches through a weekend update like most people. And um, 
and he saw it, and there was there was problems. Bob Wright turned out to be he's a he's an incredible guy, and he did what he had to do at the time, and and it's on my DVD if you ever want to see it, it's there. He let me person he, he I called him after the fact, and he said, yeah, put it on, and uh, but it's uh, yeah, there was that. I did one about Michael Jackson. They tried to sue me, Michael Jackson's. A, but do you get off on this a little bit of like constantly, you know? I mean, I'm sure you know every loophole by now, I but I mean, is there I part just, of you that enjoys these kind of kerfuffles? I enjoy them after the fact, like Eminem. So yeah, triumph, you should you should set that up. That at the MTV Awards, I went up to J Lo one year and I asked her if I could sniff her ass, and <laughs> but I warned her in advance. I like got to talk to her in the commercial break, and I'm like this pathetic kneeling, balding <laughs> Jew with a puppet, and how threatening could I be? So I'm asking her, I got a couple of jokes, is it okay? What's it about, she says. Well, is it about my butt? Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? And she went with it. And then the next year... You realize Anthony Weiner and Elliot Spitzer share Judaism in common. What? I just like that that's your, like, pass. I'm a Jewish guy. It's fine if I make obnoxious sexually <laughs> explicit jokes. At least I'm not a it's Catholic okay. priest, folks. <laughs> Is that what they're, is that their attitude? It's all the same. I don't know. I just, so, um, <laughs> so then the next year, it was Eminem. Uh, I was with Moby. I was planted next to Moby, and they said, you'll go up to Eminem afterward. And I said, okay, can we tell Eminem? And they're like, ah, Eminem's going to love it. You know, <laughs> you know Eminem, he's hilarious. He's Eminem. Now, all of your peers, Conan, uh, Dana Carvey, Judd yes. Apatow, have all said in different interviews that you are one of the greatest sketch comedy writers in the history of sketch comedy writing, and that you're the writer's writer. Very nice of them. It is very nice of them, because they were also your bosses at different points. But I was going to yeah. ask you... And um, my peons, too. It's like, they've all passed me. It's, it's very, very well, so comforting to my wife. What it, but what is that like? I mean, you hang out with people who are so rich. Adam Sandler, Judd <laughs> Apatow, Louis C.K. I mean, I understand because, like, some of right. my friends have dishwashers and a, a couple have, like, laundry on their block. So I do understand what it's like to wonder what it's like to have a disposal. But yeah. for you, it, does that come up at all? That How rich they are? yeah. I mean, they don't like to talk about it much. <laughs> the weird thing is bringing my kids over to their houses. Do they? It's like, here's my buddy Conan, you know, <laughs> and it's just, you know, he lives in Shea Stadium. They <laughs> moved it to the West Coast. <laughs> they didn't have any more use for it in Queens, so they moved it to the West Coast. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no, I, uh, that's a little weird, but I mean, it, look, I love these guys. They're, they're, they're not assholes in, in, in terms of that at all. No. They're, and they're like the nicest... They are, they're just people I got started with, and they, you know. It's, it's almost unbelievable. You guys have all worked together in different capacities, yeah. and I think that your cohorts, you and your cohorts, sort of shepherded in this new genre of comedy with uh, bromances and, and man-children and really funny, absurd <laughs> stuff, um, and you made comedy nerds cool. And I was just right. wondering if you ever resent your fans who, you know, you guys were really genuinely feral. And, um, right. They actually can like milk it and get a lot of sex from it now. Well, that's Apatow. He had more to do with that. I mean, I went to Star Wars. I went to a line of Star Wars fans and just tore them to shreds. Which but was they amazing. loved it. They loved it though, because I mean, they're nerdy enough to get it. 
I mean, look, I'm a bigger nerd than any of them as far as I'm concerned, so... But I d it seemed like for you guys, you really genuinely were nerds and isolated and alienated, and now it is the cool thing. <laughs> were? <laughs> well, come on, now you've created this... this I mean, you've made it on mainstream television. Yeah, but I'm just going to go home and cry myself to sleep like I always do. But you have a wife <laughs> lying next to you I while do. you do it. I do, I do. I have a thank God for my family. Otherwise, it would be, boy, I wouldn't see anybody. Ever. It's true. <laughs> one, one of your contemporaries who also came before you was a phenomenal writer, Jim Downey. Had, oh, um, yeah. You had quoted him saying he was a, at Saturday Night Live forever and really made one of instrumental in making the show what it is. Yeah. He, he had said that actors want to portray a crazy person in a normal <laughs> situation. Yes. And writers want to compose normal people in crazy situations. But you that's need correct. balance. Well, yeah, I mean... That's the most like stereotypical but, but accurate approach. I mean, writers like ideas, you know, and Saturday Night Live goes through periods where the balance shifts sometimes too far in one direction, like in the late, like sort of there was this male period in the 90s after I left where it got very, as Lauren called it, Ivy League. <laughs> <laughs> and then he brought in a whole new cast of amazing people like Will Ferrell and, and uh, Molly Shannon, Cher O'Terry, but then it went completely in the opposite direction. Every sketch was a wacky person with four other people going, huh? Mm. And there's a lot of watching the star who's wearing a wig and loud. And it was, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I wrote things like that. I loved, I, felt, I always felt like one of the reasons I succeeded there was because I, I really enjoyed writing for actors. And it was something Lauren said the second week I was there, he addressed the writing staff. It was a horrible year. It was 1985. 85, where they, they had just gotten, they had Lauren gotten had rid of him back. and brought him back. They got rid of the legendary, like, Christopher Guest left and Harry Shearer, Billy Crystal, and all those uh, amazing people. And then they, Lauren decided to take a you know, and they weren't quite ready, some of them, to be on uh, SNL. To be funny. Yeah. yeah, but he said, the second week we were there, he said, if you make the actors look good, then your writing will look good. And, and you know, I, I, that was like the best advice I ever got, for that show anyway, because it really is a show about performers, you know, you know popping and bursting through the, uh, the screen. And, and, and I, I was always a performer myself. Like, that's how they found me. I was on, in a sketch show in Chicago, so... So I got that, I, and so I enjoyed writing for performers. Now, sh that's a good segue to show running. You were such a phenomenal writer. Excellent segue. <laughs> well done. The only one we've got. Um, <laughs> you were such a phenomenal writer that when Conan started his show, um, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary, yeah. he brought you on as the showrunner. Yeah, well, Conan, I don't know if it was, I was so great. I mean, Conan and I were right, just Right, you were really terrible, and that's why he asked you I to was show awful. for his no, show. He, no, because exactly. we, we, we were really, like... I mean, I overlap with, like, a lot of people in different ways, and but Conan and I uh, wrote a lot of sketches together yes. at Saturday Night Live, and, and we really connected uh, in uh, a part of his kind of comedy that he found really important, which is absurdism and, and cartooniness. Like, I always, like, part of me wishes Conan could have written the cartoons with me all those years. Just how much fun I would have had doing that. But I think he, he did okay. And I, you know. Yeah, let's not feel too Triumph and triumph exists because I, of that. So that's good. I but was going to ask you about show running because it's sort of in television, a writer, as they move up, the way that they get. Um, yeah, I got burned out very quickly. So a year and a half in. Now, showrunners are supposed yeah. to have a 100% burnout rate, but yours happened real quick. Well, 
the thing is, <laughs> you know, everybody stays on their jobs longer now because everybody's terrified. You know, people at SNL used to leave after three or four years. Now people have been there for like literally 16 years, writers or, or more. But I mean, that show, to me, it was just the thrill. It was the best job I ever had, the most exciting job. Thing I wanted to do more than anything was the idea of like following Letterman, who is our, my hero, greatest talk show host ever to me, and uh, and getting the chance to create something totally different with these other amazing writers. And uh, it was um, the, the creation of it was fantastic. But then, like about a year in, we'd kind of figured out how, what worked on the show, and then it's like, okay, now we're just going to do what you do on a talk show, which is you repeat the bits if you, that are working if, over and over. If you watch the videos, I feel like you guys are so feral. Like, there's no difference <laughs> between offstage and on. You guys are, like, chewing gum during the bits. Yeah. Well, and I call it our flailing period because, <laughs> like, I was literally pushing us to try everything, just see what could work and anything that didn't feel like Letterman. I had all these crazy rules, you know, originally. Like what? I, well, originally, like, uh, well, I had, like, really obscure ones, like, no, all birds, all talking birds must talk like a parrot. <laughs> just just thought that was funnier, <laughs> no matter what kind of bird it was. That's and, like all uh, of your dogs sound and, like Russian and, immigrants. Yeah, well, that's because dogs, <laughs> that's because dogs have that same wide-eyed wonder that a Russian immigrant had in the turn of the century. Right. Coming over the boat. <laughs> Look at all of these! <laughs> I can't believe America. <laughs> so that's where, that was always in my head. And oddly enough, that was like when I was 10 years old. That, that, was, my, that was how I talked as a dog, even when I was 10 years old. I'm not kidding. But thank God they gave Conan r the show and, and him, you know, room to grow, and, and it allowed yeah. you to experiment. You didn't always have that luck. A lot of your shows, including the Dana Carvey show, which had a no. dream team of Charlie that's, Kaufman, yeah, of Louis Stephen C. Colbert, K. Louis C.K., all these... Yeah. Phenomenal. Um, lots of diversity and, and, yeah. and you know, women. And, um, <laughs> but you, you know, women weren't funny in those days. I, I, that's what I'm told. I'm told. You don't remember what it was like in the mid-90s. <laughs> there were very few women on the planet. Um, no wonder they, it's no wonder that they were grumpy and unfunny. <laughs> Nowadays, it's women everywhere. That's right. Now, I wanted to show a clip of one of the shows. I wanted to show something that you've never seen because, you know, it's more fun, I thought. And this is, I've had many failures, and this was one. Originally, uh, TV Funhouse was going to be a clown show, my spin-off show. It ended up having animal puppets, but this version was a clown show, a parody of Bozo's Circus, which was a show that ran in Chicago for about 25 years. Let's just watch. Let's this watch is the most fucked bit. up show that I ever did. Enjoy. We dim these lights. From the WGS studios in Secaucus, New Jersey, the Saturday TV Funhouse is on the air, starring Brozo, most people's favorite clown. Is Pookie Pal Lookie? This was taped the in front of an audience Lucy. of children and their parents. TV Funhouse Band. Uncle Floyd. And me, I'm Ringmaster Ted. And I'm here with a big hello and a cast of thousands. 
you're Jewish and you know it, clap your hands. If you're Chinese and you know it, not Korean, come and show it. If you're Chinese and you know it, clap your hands. If you're Catholic and you know it, clap your hands. If you're any form of Christian, clap your hands. Or if your mom's completely Asian, but your father is Caucasian, making you an Amerasian, clap your hands. There you go. So it got it got more and more fucked up. Did you have that. kids by then when you did that? I did not, but my nephews were in the audience. And how much? Did Here, you, you can put. How much did you sell that for? How much did I sell? How that much for? did you? Yeah. How much did you make? What? It got that bought. was a pilot. Yeah. No, they produced it. Fox produced it. Yeah. So how much did they pay for something like that? <sighs> I don't remember what the budget was. It, as you can see, it wasn't much. <laughs> but that show was very cheap, so it was very easy to recreate. But well, thank God for those services that get you audiences. I don't know what they said to those people. They what are I made sure they said <laughs> it's like a show for adults, but it's sort of for kids. And there were a couple of places where it was too much. We let the kids out of the room, and there was like a song. They all marched out because the show was going to be too dirty. It was like, time for the little ones to go. <laughs> this is the filthiest part of the show. It's a dirty cartoon, but you'll be back soon. And there's ice cream in the next room. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. And so uh, that was, um, you know, it was just an odd experience, but they stayed. They liked it, except for one African-American mom who... Black. I, yeah, black. Is that what they used to say? That's quaint. No, so and she came up to me. She could. She, she, I was the clown. Well, you don't know she's African American. She could be West Indies. You know, they're all different. I agree. I no, I don't know. She was something. Anyway, by my impression that you're about to hear, you make your own decision. So she looked at me and she said, "Y'all going to hell?" <laughs> and she just walked out. Duly deserved. Duly deserved. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to ask your your okay. father is an incredible. Incredibly famous and successful <laughs> dentist. He, he invented is. tooth bonding, right? He Cosmetic is, he is uh, way more important to dentistry than I could ever be to comedy. He's like the, the Steve Martin of, do, of you dentistry. Do not feel sorry for him. <laughs> um, no, did I'm, you, did I'm provide, so proud of him. Did it provide <laughs> pressure on you? No, because um, no, he was pushed into being a dentist. And so, yeah, there was. I put pressure on myself because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't think I could succeed in show business. That just seemed ridiculous. And so I went to college, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I took pre-med courses because I was like, well, he's got a great practice, and I'd probably be pretty good at it. Uh, but, you know, I was so bad at science courses. Yeah, didn't you flunk one of the... You I went flunked, from yeah, it was hysterical. Cornell Cause, to Because, like, my dad had a lot of prestige, and so they wanted to take me into his alma mater, NYU, so badly... That they, uh, that they, like, you know, admitted me. And I hadn't even finished. I had, like, a C average. And the admissions director, she, like, takes me. And, I, and, I, and by now, I had, I had done a stand-up comedy contest at NYU. And I had won. And I was like, oh, fuck. Strangers think I'm funny. Okay. I'm going to have to take a year, at least, and just see. And so I'm telling her that I'm going to defer. And she's like, that's great. We want renaissance men, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Come back in a year. Have you finished all your courses? 
Um, I, uh, I haven't finished. Uh, I have to take uh, organic chemistry to uh, one more time. Oh, okay. So, yeah, you do? What, what did you get in it? Uh, I, I got an F. As in fantastic. I got an F. No, and she's like, hmm, yeah, an F. <laughs> she's thinking about it. <laughs> She's mulling it over. <laughs> She's like, it's Dr. Smigel, it's not an F minus. <laughs> yeah, an F, yeah, you're gonna, no, we're not gonna, we, we, no, we can't take you, we can't admit you with an F, I'm sorry. It just killed her, it was the most ridiculous thing, but I was embarrassed for It's her. also, I, I love that your father was phenomenally successful and that it, it gave you incentive and also, you know, you knew what success looked like and how hard it took. For him to well, get there. yeah, I, I, yes, I had had a lot of respect for him. He worked very hard. He didn't really enjoy dentistry until he figured out, you know, he developed the tooth bonding procedure that, uh, you know, sort of had a huge impact and changed. You've done it. No, I have not. Okay, well then, why are you smiling? I was just showing why? off my major. You're just saying, oh, I don't need your dad. Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if he ever needs me, I'm available for commercials. No, but you have to. Oh well, you maybe for his toothpaste. He yeah. sells a toothpaste. It's a whole thing. So I wanted anyway. to. I wanted to give you some ruggle. You came all the way from New Jersey, and this is from your home state. Thank but they you. sell it for more in Brooklyn. Well, I was born in Manhattan, but I live in Jersey That's now. That's right. And. And um, Thank you. I also wanted Thank to give much. you a record from Bill Cosby because mm. you... <laughs> I used to write sketches with Adam Sandler where Bill, where, that were entirely gibberish. Where he would just play Bill Cosby doing You Bet Your Life. Remember when he hosted... Yes. And it was just... You bet your life. Um, it was the happiest day of my life. Four minutes of gibberish <laughs> made Saturday Night Live. Oh, I forgot to ask you. You also did an impression of Alan Dershowitz. Yeah, that's... Well, I, w I wouldn't call it an impression. I'd call it, like, the harsh reality that I was able to look like him. With <laughs> It was so sad, because this is one of the most hide hideous men on the planet. Can I, tell you, can I tell you something really traumatizing? What? As a kid, I went to a, um, this beach in Martha's Vineyard every summer. I know that's the traumatizing part. Yeah. And... Um, I'm kidding, but he was there naked every year. He's no. a nudist. He was the first man I saw naked. Luckily, was not the he last. well hung at least? No, it's it's really little, and it it he sits. He always sits like it still open. takes. He, he still thinks it takes direct attention away from his face. Anything <laughs> I, can, I, you know, I know it's small, but still. I found I found your I found your impressions of him very very cathartic after that. Uh, I think it was, it was just that I kid. looked like him. I mean, I can't. I remember the horror the first time. At SNL, they were, it was a Woody Allen, Mia Farrow sketch, and they needed a Dershowitz, and they made me up, and I looked in the mirror, and I was so upset how much I looked like Dershowitz. I was like, oh, my God, I'm just a couple of bad choices away from <laughs> being a horror show. Um, Not that this is a good choice. This is my Kevin Pollack look. Now you're, fi now you're fishing. Now you're fishing. <laughs> no, I'm not. The one thing I just want, the last question I wanted to ask was, you've had so much success and you're very aware of it and, and incredibly humble. You, you've also said that you've blown a lot of your <laughs> chances at success in film and TV. Spit it out, everybody knows. No, what? <laughs> I've blown a lot of my, what? That you had a lot of success and you've said that you've, you've blown it, that you haven't always lived up to it. Do you really feel that way, that, that you're not a success? I don't remember that quote. I, it was in a Mike Sachs interview. <laughs> Mike Sachs interview. Oh, yeah, I mean, I made, well, look, I, you saw that show. <laughs> I think, you know, sometimes I've blown it, I think, just by not, 
overreaching, like trying to by, by overreaching, by trying to sell things to people who are just never going to, like, like the Dana Carvey show should have been on cable. But sometimes it was the exciting thing was taking the big swing. Like we want to do a primetime show with SNL um, sensibility. And we thought, and that was what made it exciting. And so, and, you know, if it had been on HBO, I think it would have been, it had Steve Carell and Colbert. And it was incredible. Louis was the head writer. It was an amazing show. And Charlie theory. Kaufman. And Charlie Kaufman, who's you know, succeeded. Steve Carell says it was <laughs> the greatest. Then, Steve Carell says it was the greatest uh, time of his life, actually. Did he say that? He said that on your probably DVD. The last time, oh yeah, well it was probably <laughs> the last time he ever could just be hilarious without having to feel pressure. It was like everything was gravy at that point. It was just, he he was found very late. He was like in, in his thirties and he'd never gotten a break. L okay, it'll happen for all of us. <laughs> it um, will happen. Robert Smigel, it was such a treat to have you here. Thank, Thank you. you so much. The Emmys don't work. Oh, Emmy, you're going to auction off the Emmy? No. We're not going to. Somebody return the Emmy. Please give a hand to Robert Smigel, and here is the Emmy. Here you go, get out. star and I thought to begin with she would come out and um, sing. <laughs> Miss Lady Rizzo. Hello everybody. You look beautiful. You look puffy in all the right places. <laughs> it's good to be home. I, I'm going to sit on a stool. Is that all right with everyone? The stool found me, really. I'm a chanteuse, that's how I introduce myself at cocktail parties, which I find is wonderful because it stops the conversation right away. <laughs> Most people think it's a color of green. <laughs> but as a chanteuse, <laughs> feel free to make noise when I expose parts of my body I haven't previously highlighted. <laughs> These are just gams. They hold up my torso. <laughs> I heard an old lady call them pins the other day. I like that. Nice set of pins you got there. Um, so I, m as a chanteuse, my favorite hobbies are, are uh, singing about unrequited love. And hopefully that's against a pane of glass where it's raining on one side. Hopefully that's not the side that I'm on, <laughs> because then my mascara would run. But I'm not wearing any makeup tonight. I'm just <laughs> fresh-faced, really. Just rolled out of bed. So uh, this is a torch song for our time. Unfortunately, it's 2013. <laughs> I just found out. I've been living in the 20s. <laughs> I Google you when it's late at night and I don't know what to do.
I find photos you've forgotten you were in put up by a creaky frame I Google you when the day is done and there's nothing left to do read that journal you kept your month in France <laughs> I've watched you dance and I'm pleased your name is practically unique there's only you and a would-be PhD in Chesapeake who writes papers on the structure of the sun. I've read each one. And I know that I should let you fade, but there's that box and there's your name. Nothing seems to make the pain less or fade or disappear I should save my soul and crawl back in my hole but it's too easy just to fold and type your name again don't do it don't do it Rizzo put your fingers down why are you starting with that letter the search history knows it information that I gather seems to say you found somebody new and I know it shouldn't matter couldn't wait for that. Really, could you not wait? You knew it was the end. Are your sinuses really that bad? Fucking let it drip. Woo! That's 
is on. Lady Rizzo. Was that your grandpa? Um, it was a woman <laughs> in her 20s. Uh, were you born a diva? Uh, I was born uh, with uh, really loving artistic parents. Hippie dippy. Yeah. In so, Oregon. So they told me I could do anything I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> it's really dangerous when you believe that anything is possible. You got to perform with Yo-Yo Ma and won a Grammy on his beautiful Christmas album. Yeah, it was a Christmas album, and I'm a Jew. Um, and you were not allowed to go by Lady Rizzo because I of know. the assets, I know, which is your band. Oh, wow, you really know some stuff. Yeah, they didn't um, want it to be super... S they didn't want Where it to been? be sexual, and so they asked to go by my, um, my regular name, which is Amelia Zirin Brown. And how much did you get paid to help him? Because I imagine this is a, a great way for him to make money shilling doing a Christmas album. Oh, how much did I get paid? I have, I, I'd have to look at my finances. Uh, call mm -hmm. my business manager. Would you like to get him on the line? Yeah, tell um, us. <laughs> how much I did got you Really, I got paid. He's a wonderful creature. But I, um, it, what was interesting is that I was like, oh, my God, yo, 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 yo. I was thinking we could get in the room and we could, you know, improve improvise in this little bit and they were like um yo-yo doesn't improvise yeah. i was like um <laughs> i can improvise it's it's a totally different world and sony bmg gave me a, a small check but I, the grammy is oh, but is you did get paid for it i got paid oh, okay that's yeah. the, the reason i was asking is because a lot of times uh, younger musicians and artists, uh, you know, will do things for free yeah. on albums that generate a tremendous amount of money for the main person. And yeah, no, I got paid. He's a lovely, lovely person. He's Great, he cares. Um, he's a, a phenomenal artist, and I miss the taxi cab. Uh, I know, don't you? Don't do what I did. I, I left my cello in the trunk. I loved that. Um, now you have a new album coming out. Violet, and that yeah. that is going to hit. That is going to hit iTunes. It's going to drop. <laughs> it's going to hotly that is drop. Going to drop when? Yeah, it, the the album releases November nineteenth. I thought you might want to know that. Yair uh, is a producer on the album and uh, is in, in incredible and uh, in arranging a lot of the songs. And um, and then I have a uh, an album release show at Joe's Pub, November twentieth and twenty first is my my New York album release girl and then will you go to london from from there yeah i go to london uh, and i do um three weeks in london and then i go to sydney and and i and I you just came back from uh edinburgh yeah we just did a month in edinburgh i apologize i apologize i'm just working <laughs> on the spanish yeah. <laughs> edinburgh and um it it's um it's a wonderful place. I, there's 2,000 shows a day there, you know? Yes. And this is the festival. Yeah, the Fringe Festival. A, a lot of Americans don't know about this, but the cool ones do, yeah. And, uh, yeah, basically the whole rest of the world cares about this. It's like soccer, you know? Well, no, no, no. But it's also a place for, for I mean, Kristen Shaw and Dimitri Martin, a lot of comedians yeah, and Reggie Watts all break out yeah. there. We are going to do a longer interview on the podcast yes. because I would like people to get a chance to hear another song from you. How does that sound to you guys? Okay. Well, so I've known a lot of these guys for a while. I've known Shockwave for a while. 
Isn't he cute? Um, and uh, Arthur. And so this is something I did with Shockwave a while ago, but it's on the album. Uh, I do it with Reggie Watts. And, uh, it's who's, a a, who's a comedian for folks who don't know? And he's yeah. also been on Employee of the Month three times. Oh, my God. So you can check him out on the podcast. And his hair has been on four times. He has amazing <laughs> hair. So uh, this is a Carpenter song. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Lady Reason! 
I popped a semi. Don't be fooled by the rocks that she got. Katie's friends all have their own laundry on the box. And even though we tried to keep it tight, fucking stage right gave us sinus issues all night. So follow her on the road to riches. Thanks for coming out to Employee of the Month, bitches. this episode of the employee of the month show if you didn't get to come to the live taping but feel like god that seemed like really a lot of fun don't worry you can go to the employee of the month show.com website and find out about more live tapings in new york there will be some in los angeles and i'm hoping to do one in washington dc as well thank you so much to peter sagel and wait wait don't tell me thank you to the colbert report for generously donating to our auction Thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you to those who came out. I want to thank Joel Arnold who edits this together. And most especially, I just want to say that it means so much to all of us. And by all of us, I mean myself and all of these phenomenal guests who come on the show that you all listen. So thank you to guys for listening. And I hope that you get inspiration and joy and some humor. Maybe you cry, hopefully at the right parts um, from some of these interviews. But it is it's just a joy to do this show. Did I mention the joy part? I think I've only said it a couple of times um, to, to share these interviews. And I, I really hope that they inspire you and, and make you laugh. And again, only cry at the right points. There are only certain points where you're supposed to cry. It, honestly, that's, that's we only allowed it a couple of tears. Thanks. Talk to you soon.